So last night I was in Stanton, which is by Garden Grove, which is by Westminster, and we were having, they were having an interfaith banquet, and I, I went and enjoyed myself, and I was sitting at a table with a Vietnamese monk who had just opened a temple, and he looked at me and said, you know, you should really open a big temple and have a lot of disciples, and, and I thought to myself, no, no, you know, number one, I'm too old, and number one, I don't want disciples, and, and then I thought about my website. So I've had a website, Urban Dharma, since 2001. And what they say about websites is every year on earth is seven years on the internet. So I've had a website for 105 years now. (laughs) And it's doing very well. And I thought, maybe that's my temple, you know. And maybe all those, maybe my disciples are the people that join up for my podcasts on iTunes. And maybe that's good enough in America, you know, as we start to uh, make Buddhism uh, part of our culture. So, um, a couple weeks ago, I received an email from UCLA, and they were inquiring whether I might be interested in, in doing a series of interviews with them for their oral history library. They're starting a new section on Buddhism in Los Angeles, and they will be interviewing various people, and they wanted to know if I'd be interested. So I said, yeah, this, that'll be, it's just like a giant podcast. So sure, you know, and no problem. And I contacted my brother, Bob, and said, Bob, you know, I've just been invited to be part of the UCLA Oral History Library. And he said, it's got to be a prank email. <laughs> Do they want any money? And I said, no, no, they just want my time. And, and I thought to myself, yeah, that's exactly what's supposed to happen when you tell your brother that you're, you're going to be doing something. And, and then I spoke to some other people about this opportunity, and, and they as much as said, but why you? You know? With all the great teachers in Los Angeles, because we have a bunch of really good Buddhist teachers in Los Angeles, why would they think you would be important enough to... And, and I thought to myself, you know, I really don't know why. That'll be my first question to them. So we're going to have the first interview next Tuesday. And it'll be a series of interviews for maybe six to eight weeks, once a week for an hour and a half to two hours. And we'll be, they'll be defining me and my life in, uh, in an interview. And I thought, wow, that's going to be really challenging. So I've been thinking about it a lot. And then last week, I, I woke up at like three in the morning. And I just had this sort of fear thing going through my psyche. And, and I said to myself, you know, what's going to happen to all my robes when I die? Who's going to take care of them? Is there a local Buddhist museum that I could donate them to? And how about all those certificates of appreciation that are on my wall? They're going to get thrown away. How can I preserve them for future generations? And then I sort of woke up and said, well, you know, maybe you don't need to. Maybe each generation has their own people and their own stuff to do. 
And I can remember when Liberace died, he had his own museum in Las Vegas, and he had his cars and his pianos and all his clothes, and it was really interesting for a few years, and then nobody went anymore because they had forgotten about him. And it just seems to be sort of the nature of being alive with seven billion people. There's always somebody who's going to do the next thing when you stop doing your thing. So what I'd like to talk about is a little bit about what I've been thinking about uh, and then end with five reflections. So I thought to myself, well, how did it all start for me? How did, how did I go into this Buddhism thing? And I remember I was 27 to 28 and, and realized that I had to die. So there was this sort of more mortality thing going on. And I'm going, wow, you know, I never thought that I would really think about having to die. But then when you start thinking about it, you say to yourself, well, where are you going to go and what are you going to do? And are you going to have a good death? Or are you just going to suffer and scream a lot and fight the Grim Reaper? And blah, blah, blah. So I, I said, you know, I was a Lutheran. I was an agnostic. Maybe I need a religion that will allow me to to be able to die well and in a skillful way. So I, I got this book by, by Houston Smith, World Religions, and I found a chapter on Buddhism, and Buddhism was, yeah, that's the one. Makes the most sense. Of all the religions, that one made the most sense. And then I bought my first Buddhist book, which was called the Dhammapada. Dhammapada is, I think, 413 or 423 sayings of the Buddha, something like that. And, and those made sense, too. Never having read anything about Buddhism, I was surprised how, how, how much I understood, at least at some level. And then I went to a Sri Lankan Buddhist temple in Hollywood, and Venerable Dhamma Rama was the abbot. And it was all Sri Lankans but me. And they had invited a guest speaker. His name was Shinzen. Some of you know Shinzen. And he, at that time, was living and working at the International Buddhist Meditation Center, and they invited him to come and speak about Buddhism. So, you know, there was the first, you know, L.A. guy I had met speaking about Buddhism in a way that I almost understood. He, he was philosophically deep, and I wasn't, so he would leave me behind as he went into his discourse. But I got some of it, and I can remember vividly after his talk, he came over to me and said, you know, you should be with us. And I didn't really know what that meant. I should be with him. Uh, you should be with us. And, and then uh, a few months later, I wanted to find a place to meditate, and I got the phone book, and I found the International Buddhist Meditation Center, which was where he was living and working, and, and he was the meditation teacher. And I went over there. And, and I sort of understood why he said you should be with us because he was talking about people that come from an American culture need to hear Americans talk about Buddhism because they have the reference points we can relate to. Listening to an Asian talk about Buddhism is listening to Asian culture talking about this religion, which is fine, but there are times when it just leaves you out because you don't have the cultural reference points. So I continued to go there and listen to him speak and, and try and practice meditation. And it was really difficult, and I didn't like it at all, but I really enjoyed what he said and how he said it, and that kept me sort of connected to the whole thing. And then I, I said to him, I want to study early Buddhism 
because I'd realized Zen was a bit too poetic and abstract for me to comprehend. And so he suggested I go to Dharma Vijaya Buddhist Vihara, which is a Sri Lankan temple, the big circle, Sri Lankan temple on Crenshaw. And there was a, a monk named Venerable Ratanasara who was teaching a class. And, and he would be a good person to hook up with if I wanted to learn early Buddhism. So I went over there and knocked on the door, and he answered the door. And I said, you know, I, I, I want to take your class. And so he says, well, come back next Wednesday. And I said, okay. So I went back next Wednesday, and it was me and him. And so we sat down, and we started to read the Vasudhimaga, the Path of Purification. And, we, and I would read a page, and then he would explain it to me. It was that kind of thing. So it was a slow but, but deep process of, of trying to figure out uh, what the heck this book talked about. And it was talking about meditation. And it is an ancient meditation manual that's 900 pages long. So some of my questions, it, it said at one point in the book that the students should honor the teacher and bring them toothbrushes. <laughs> you know? And so I'm thinking, well, you know, 2,600 years ago, did they have toothbrushes? <laughs> and so I asked him. See, these, these are my questions. It wasn't about, you know, how deep the jhana was. Is what kind of toothbrushes did you guys have? And they said there's a plant, and, 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 you, and there's a branch, and you break off the branch, and you rub the end of the branch on a rock, and it bristles. And that was your toothbrush. So the student would go out and find these branches and, and rub them and make the bristles appear, and then he'd hand them to his teacher. So I thought, wow, that is so cool. And so that's how it started for me. And, and, and it was the way I needed to approach it. And I think each one of us have our own unique ways of approaching our religion or our lifestyle um, and, or our spirituality, even if we don't consider it to be a religion. And, and so I had a very, I had a very basic form of intelligence at that time. I'm going to have to say, if you meditate long enough, your intelligence changes. There's an innate intelligence that we all have that's, that really isn't cultivated in school. There's another kind of intelligence, and, and so that is cultivated in your meditation practice. So I, was, I came in at the very bottom of my intelligence as I started to understand Buddhism. And so what I did is I read books about people who went to meditation centers, or went on three-month retreats. And I would listen to what they wrote about their experience and try to visualize what Buddhism was. And that worked for quite a while. I, I was, there's a, there were some wonderful books back then about people that went to Japan and joined the monastery and, and got up early every morning. And, and, and then I decided, well, maybe I should read some of the commentaries. The commentaries would be the commentaries talking about the Buddhist texts and, and, and helping us define uh, what they were talking about. So, I, you know, I still couldn't read a text and understand it. I needed to come from a place of having other people understand it and then explain it in a way that I could understand it. So some of the insights that I had in the beginning were, were basic insights that probably a lot of us uh, have already had. But one uh, insight was, um, did the Buddha believe in God? And, and when I would ask that question to people, some people would say, oh yeah, oh yeah, the Buddha believed in God. And then some people would say, oh no, Buddha was an atheist, he, he didn't believe in God. 
And then a lot of people said, I don't know, which turned out to be the best answer of all. Um, and, and so my answer that, see, we all have to come to our own answers. That's another thing about Buddhism. I mean, they, they can tell us what they want to tell us, but, but until we prove it to be true to ourselves, it, it really doesn't matter. So I have come to the conclusion that, yes, the Buddha absolutely believed in the gods, small gs, of India, and found them to be useful up to a point. And some of the rites and rituals he didn't go along with, like, you know, killing animals to appease the gods and make the crops grow and stuff like that. Uh, so, so he had things to say about it, but, but he even at some points taught the gods about Buddhism and the Dharma. And I thought, this is so cool, the Buddha's teaching the gods, you know. Now, how do I apply it to myself in 2015? So do I believe in God? Uh, I would have to say... Um, I don't believe in God, but I also don't disbelieve in God at the same time. So what does that mean? Well, it means that uh, Buddhism is about suffering and the end of suffering, and that God does not cause me to suffer, and that God cannot end my suffering. So it's sort of a non-issue for a Buddhist, if there is or isn't, because suffering is something that we experience as humans that only humans can end. Only they can end it themselves. Gods can't do it. Now, gods can make it a little bit easier for us, and we can suffer less, perhaps, by having faith in Kuan Yin Bodhisattva or Manjushri or the variety of bodhisattvas in Mahayana tradition. But coming to that place where I don't have to believe or not believe in God allowed me to have a burden lifted off my shoulders. That it was, people could argue and kill each other all they wanted about God, and and I didn't have to get involved. I could just listen and sort of wonder to myself why they felt that way. How did they come to that conclusion? The conclusion that I didn't ever come to. So I'm fascinated when I talk to atheists because they define themselves very well and they will tell you exactly why they don't believe in God for hours. (laughs) (laughs) And then you talk to the people that do believe in God and they will tell you why they believe in God for hours. And then you just sort of sit in there going, wow, wow, you know, this is a lot of thinking and a lot of talking and it never comes to any conclusion because there, it always ends up being, well, I can't prove it to be true, but I believe it to be true. And so I lack that faith, and I lack that belief, which allows me to just sort of sit there and then leave and get a cup of coffee. And <laughs> everything is okay with the world. It's fine. Then the next big question for the guy who comes to Buddhism is, or gal, is how did it all start? You know, it's really important for humans to know how the story starts. And, and I always like to start all my e-books with page one, because that's where the story starts. So it gives me sort of a basis of understanding when I get to the middle and get to the end of how it got there. And you would like to have that same, that same model or paradigm in understanding how the world started. And the Buddha said, well, you know... 
it really didn't start ever. Which is just a radical concept to understand. I mean, it didn't ever start, so it probably will never end. And, and it took me years to just sort of like let it settle in my head that maybe that's what the Buddha said, but I don't know if I'll ever be able to understand it. So when people say, do you believe in what the Buddha said? I can tell them that I understand this to be true as far as the Buddha said this on page 34. But whether it's true to me or not hasn't been a big issue. I just read it, I find it fascinating, and I go, okay, so the Buddha said this. I, I never felt it, it needed to be proven. I never felt I needed that kind of truth. Now, how did it start? Well, we can, as Buddhists, say it was Big Bang Theory. We can say God started it. We can say Flying Spaghetti Monster. We can say I don't know. <laughs> we can say a whole lot of things, and they're all okay to say. Because even if we found out what the truth was behind the beginning of everything, it would not end our suffering. It would just give us something else to talk about, and nobody would believe us. So we can let that go. So now we, we dealt with God, we dealt with how it all started, and then we got to deal with, well, where do we go? Because we all started. You see, that was the big deal for us, is we all started. And because we started, we all have to end. And that's a little disappointing if you like what's going on. <laughs> you know? And, and I, I feel... Sorry for, for soldiers, men and women, who have to die on the battlefield because they're at their best and their strongest. And it must be very difficult to die at that point. But when you're 80 or 90 and your body is just, you know, frail and you can't keep your oatmeal down anymore, you know, maybe death doesn't sound so bad. Maybe it's like this big rest. And, of course, for a Buddhist, it's a reboot, isn't it? It means we get to go to our next lifetime and start all over again. So this life has ended. We've worn it out. We've done our best. And now we go to the next one. So where do we go? Everybody says, where do you go? Well, they actually have heavens and hells in Buddhism, a lot of them. You know? And so we get to go to heaven and hell. And then people say, well, how do you know? And, and the only answer you can give is you don't. But it's on page 34, <laughs> you know. So, and they even have charts how high the heavens are and how low the hells are. I just love it when people, you know, make it real outside their mind. And, and so, so is it important for us to, to understand that there may be heavens and hells? And I think absolutely. It, it seems to me that it's much easier to die if you have some place to go. Now, a lot of people say in a very stoic and not-so-credible way, I don't care. When it's my time, I'm ready. And, you know, when you're really healthy and everything's, and you're in air conditioning, you know, it, it's like, okay, that's great, I'm going to go. But when you're on that bed and you're waiting for the little machine to flatline, you probably want someplace to go. So I would say absolutely. I would say you don't even need to believe in heaven and hell. You just need to understand that it's part of the, the Buddhist model. And there may be places that we go, and there is a way to get there. It's our karma 
that decides where we were born, in heaven or hell, or come back as a human. Now, the biggest difficulty I had in understanding Buddhism was there seemed to be more than one Buddhism. And nobody ever talked about it in a way that made sense to me. So I'm reading this stuff about Theravada Buddhism and the Dhammapada and the Pali Canon and all the commentaries and all the wonderful South Asian temples with the monks in saffron robes. I'm thinking, yeah, now that is Buddhism. And then I get to Mahayana Buddhism in China and Korea and most of Vietnam, and, and they're not wearing saffron now. You know, they've changed. They're like wearing light brown or dark brown. In Korea, they wear gray. And they don't even talk about nirvana anymore. It seems to be something that isn't important to them. And it is the most important thing in early Buddhism, Theravada, nirvana. And I'm thinking, why? And I ask people, and I don't get any good answers. So again, when that happens, we have to figure out for ourselves what the answer is. And, and so I'll give you my answer, and which may be useful or maybe not. So my answer is that there is absolutely many kinds of Buddhism in the world. And, and three main rivers flowing, Theravada, Mahayana, Vajrayana, Tibetan Buddhism, Reform Buddhism, Early Buddhism. Okay, early Buddhism, it doesn't seem to be a religion, though it's practiced as a religion now in 2015, but, but when it started, it seemed to me more of a therapy. You know, an amazing therapy to end your suffering. And you didn't have to believe in anything. All you had to do was do stuff. You had to meditate, and you had to practice the precepts. And, and you had to understand that greed and hatred and delusion were the poisons that were running through your consciousness that prevented you from seeing the reality of your life. And so your experience was always clouded with this greed, hatred, and delusion. And so through the practice of early Buddhism, you cultivated your consciousness, you exercised your karma, and you came to a place where you no longer had to suffer. And that end of suffering in this lifetime is called nirvana. So I got that, but the, the other two things that I got came later. The second thing you got was you ended your karma. So you never produce karma again once you achieve nirvana. And I couldn't understand why that was important. Because karma seemed to be a really important thing. In the 60s, you found it on bumper stickers. What goes around comes around. How could this not be important? <laughs> you know. So I'm thinking, okay, well, we are born of our karma. We need karma to be born. And, and, and then the thing that migrates from lifetime to lifetime is our karma. That's how important this is. So our karma is this sort of stream of, of intention, speech, and action. And, and we've created this energy, and it's like a wake behind a boat. And it goes from one lifetime to the next lifetime to the next lifetime until finally, through Buddhist practice, the early Buddhist tradition of Theravada, you end your karma, which then would mean that you would end all future rebirths. 
So I came to this part in my reasoning and thinking, and I said, this is going to be a hard sell. I'm going to encourage you never to exist again. (laughs) Okay. So I'm thinking, why would that be important? Well, existence always brings suffering. And if you really want to end your suffering, you have to end your existence. But do you really ever end your existence? Because the Buddha said, even the cosmos didn't have a beginning, so it can't have an end. And nirvana is unborn and undying. And none of our sense doors, I concluded, were able to actually experience nirvana. Because our sense doors were attuned to impermanence and change. Every sense door we have only registers change. So how does that work? I thought to myself, well, let's take sound. Sound has sound and silence. If it didn't have silence, we couldn't hear the sound. And so when a string vibrates, there's a sound and silence phenomena occurring which allows us to hear it. If it's just all silence or all sound, we can't hear it. So I went, whoa, what a trip. You know, so now, okay, if in fact, in nirvana, we don't exist in the way we do now, because now we, all our sense doors are attuned to permanence and change, and without that, can we even be aware of our existence? Not with these sense doors. So, my conclusion was, this body does not go to nirvana. It's not set up. This body is set up for samsara, which is the earth, which is the place where birth and death occurs, and where change is always happening. Okay, so now we're going to have to leave our body behind to go into nirvana. So maybe it's some kind of rarefied consciousness The Buddha was never specific and never went into it, realizing none of us could ever understand what he was about to tell us, so he just didn't tell us. But it seems to me it's it's a radical place, and it's a radical way of existing in non-existence. And and what I mean by that is there's no beginning and there's no end, and so it could be like this parallel universe. And here is the Buddha now in nirvana, who's like right here with us today, But none of our sense doors can really pick it up. So it seems like there's nothing else happening except this. Wow, okay. How are you going to sell this, though? How are you going to sell? Well, so we just have to settle with the end of suffering. If you're never born again, you'll never suffer again. If you think about all the suffering you have experienced in all the lifetimes you have lived already, from the beginningless beginning... Wow, how many parents have died? How many billions and trillions of your parents have died? And you've had to bury them and be sad that they're gone and never able to see them again. How many cats and dogs have you laid to rest in all those lifetimes? How many times have you had cancer or MS or all the other things that kill us? How many times have you experienced that? How many tears have you shed because of the suffering you've experienced. And so anyone who's got deep insight into human suffering would say anything is better than suffering one more time. And that's what nirvana gives us. It gives us a refuge from suffering. Okay, 
therapeutically, it's wonderful because you're practicing on ending your suffering and you're, and you're staying focused and then you die and then you don't get reborn because you've ended your karma and you're always in this wonderful place of nirvana forever because it has no beginning or no end. Very abstract, but at least there's some place we can go where there's no suffering, nirvana. Now, Mahayana says, you know, eh, that's not going to work. It's not going to be a really good religion. It's, it's a therapy, and you're talking non-existence, and nobody's going to buy it. And you've got to have more rites and rituals, and you've got to have people and things and deities helping you. You need to feel that the most important thing is not you, but everyone else. And so they came up with Mahayana Buddhism, the reform movement, the Protestants of Buddhism. And, you know? And they say, we're going to have a certifiable religion, and we're not going to have nirvana as our ultimate goal. We're going to have enlightenment as our ultimate goal. Okay, so here I'm thinking about all this stuff and creating this wonderful model in my head, and I said, well, what is the difference between enlightenment and nirvana? Because all the books I've read seem to use both words interchangeably. Nirvana, enlightenment, enlightenment, nirvana. But for me... In my understanding, there is an absolute difference between the two. Number one, nirvana, the end of suffering while you're alive, the end of karma, and the end of all future rebirths. Okay, none of that happens in enlightenment. Enlightenment, the direct experience of the interconnectedness and interdependence of all phenomena. I'll say it again. The direct experience of the interconnectedness and interdependence of all phenomena. It, it's an epiphany. It, it's a moment f- going from self to selfless, going from individual to group. Wow, cool. Realizing that we've always been connected. All this diversity is always connected. It's not the same. It, 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 it's, it's, not, it, it's sort of a unity rather than a oneness. And, and I like that concept better because I really feel uncomfortable when people say we should all be one. And I'm thinking, but not everybody's going to play the banjo like I do. Does that mean if, in order for me to be one, I have to stop playing the banjo? If it's unity and diversity, it means I can be connected and still be an individual. I can still see it my way and it'll be okay. And I can still be with everybody else because we're always connected. And when I came to that conclusion, I felt so comfortable about being in a place like Los Angeles with so much diversity that seems to keep so many people separate from it, and yet realizing that there are so many ways we're connected, and all you have to do is get a piece of paper and a pencil and make a list of all the ways humans are connected. Number one, we all breathe, you know, and the air is not very good, so we're all going to get cancer. (laughs) You know, we all drink water, at least until it's gone in Los Angeles. We all need a place to live. You know, some people live outside, some people live inside. We all wear clothes most of the time. Not, and basically, for fashion, but also for function, in some parts of the country, it gets really cold. So it's good to have clothes or you die. And the list goes on and on and on and on. And one of the ways I put it together in my own mind was to say, okay, at some point, every human is attached to this earth. And if you could draw a line on the earth to connect all the humans, you could actually do that. 
All the humans are connected because they're all on Earth. So there are so many ways we're connected and, and not disconnected and, and, and not independent, though that is an important illusion to have. Our independence allows us to survive because we need to, to do it for ourselves most of the time. Our parents give us 18, 20 years of their help and then it's up to us. So we have to figure it out. So we have this, these two levels of reality. We have relative reality, we're all separate. Ultimate reality, we're all connected. Relative reality is all about me. Ultimate reality is all about us. And I've noticed people who are on a spiritual path oftentimes go from self to selfless. There's, there's a turning point where they start to see that it's important to be concerned about others as well. And then it's more important to be concerned about others. Because if you're concerned about others, you'll be taken along with them. So I'm going, okay, so Mahayana Buddhism became a religion. It changed the goal from nirvana to enlightenment. It also said, in a lot of cases, you can't do it yourself. You need help. And we have bodhisattvas, we have Buddhist saints that have dedicated their life to be of service to all sentient beings. And even if for some reason you end up in hell, there is a bodhisattva in hell who will help you suffer less and eventually get out of hell. So bodhisattvas are like everywhere. And if you become a monk or a nun in the Mahayana tradition, you take a vow to come back as a human being until all sentient beings are saved. So you take a vow to be reborn as a human time and time again forever because logically we'll never come to a time when all sentient beings are saved. That's a pretty big commitment to make. And it's, it's not one made because you are selfish, it's one that's made because you are selfless and realize the importance of assisting others in their reduction and eventual end of suffering. So, having said that, we have Mahayana and Theravada, and the ultimate goal in both of them literally would be nirvana, would be the end of suffering, but in the Mahayana tradition, there's a whole group of people who are saying, I don't want my nirvana yet. I want to help others achieve theirs first. I'm going to then take mine when everybody else has theirs. And what we have to say, too, is that as a bodhisattva in the Mahayana tradition, with enlightenment as you go, you don't suffer less. In fact, you may suffer more. Because now you are taking on the suffering of the entire world. You have seven billion people suffering. You have seven billion ways you are now going to suffer. We can add a positive twist to that by saying you can also look at it as I don't have to rely on my own happiness. I now have seven billion ways to be happy. So if you want your glass half full or half empty, it's up to you. But you can always refill it. And that's the best part about a glass. Okay, that was actually a Facebook post that I really liked. (laughs) So you can see this sort of evolution of practice and consciousness that 
I, I started with this sort of very secular, non-religious, non-spiritual intelligence that was cultivated and massaged through meditation and Dharma reading and listening to Dharma talks and starting to see the world in sort of like a different way. I came to understand that, that, that we pretty much create the way we experience the world. Now, other people can share with us how they experience the world, and other people can explain to us what their truth is. Now, if you've been listening to Donald Trump, you know what his truth is. And it is fascinating. (laughs) And I'm not concerned whether it's truth with a big T or a small T. I am just fascinated by how he came to that point of view. Because my path... And my practice has taken me to a little different point of view, which could be misunderstood by many. And do we feel comfortable in resting in our truth, realizing that it's always going to be a relative truth if it's intellectual? It'll be an ultimate truth if it's heartfelt. So in Mahayana Buddhism, they have a way of looking at things, incorporating both the mind and the heart, and, and, and when you look at the world in that way, heart-mind, you see you are doing intuitive and intellectual and blending them and, and getting maybe a truer sense of, of what human experience is, really. Having said that, again, when do you get to the end? I said to myself. And can you ever stop? I said to myself. Well, it became apparent to me that you can never stop, which is really disappointing. Because when you start this path, it's really exciting, and you think it's going to be just wonderful, and you're going to be enlightened, and you're going to have such a radical perspective on what it means to be a human, and then you just find yourself busy, busy, busy all the time because everybody is suffering and they're all calling you to help them with their suffering. And then you go into institutions where they house hundreds if not thousands of humans who are suffering. And then you hit the freeway and they're all suffering too. (laughs) And you just go, wow, maybe this isn't for me. Maybe I'm not going to be able to handle all this suffering of my own and then others as well. Maybe I can just, like, stop and get off the path. And then you come to a realization that you can't. You can't forget what you know. You can't forget what you've experienced. It has changed you whether you wanted it to or not. And you simply have to keep going ahead, never able to stop, never able to turn back and be the ignorant person you used to be when you were happy and blissful at that place. So when I look at people who are like really intelligent and really philosophical, you know what I notice? I notice a little sadness in their face because they've seen the truth of this existence that we're involved in. And they know it never gets any better. That we don't ever have less wars, we have more wars. You know, we don't ever have less violence, we have more violence. We don't ever have smaller prisons, we have bigger prisons. Because there are more and more people suffering and coming from different realms of existence. 
So people have asked me, what do you think about, why do we keep having more and more people on Earth? Where are they coming from? Is there like this finite number? And if there is a finite number, why are they all coming to Earth now? And I'm thinking, well, probably, in my analysis of the universe, there's probably a whole lot of people in the hell realms being released now to Earth. (laughs) You know, and they spent like hundreds of thousands of human lifetimes just suffering like crazy in earth or in hell and now their chance to come and they come to earth and they don't know what the hell to do you know they're stealing and they're killing and they're driving too fast and they're texting (laughs) you know (laughs) and so we have all these people that say no no you're just really unskillful you have to learn a new skill set in order to live on earth because you have 7 billion people and we all got to live in harmony in some way and this is how you're going to have to do it so we're going to give you a bible and a cell for a while and you're going to reflect on all your unskillful natures and then hopefully we'll release you and you'll be a wonderful human being and benefit the community you live in yeah and then once in a while you get these heaven beings that be, are being reborn. They're in the heaven realms, and that's not forever either, and they have to leave. And they, all of a sudden they end up like in Pacoima. And you go, why would they, why would they go to Pacoima? <laughs> and maybe that's where they're needed the most. You know, Paulus Verdes, they already got some heaven beings. But Pacoima, get them there. So we have 7 billion people re- being reborn out of all the various heaven realms and hell realms and animal realms and they're coming to earth and so it never gets better you know and then they either go back to hell or heaven or come back as a human being and it's just a big cycle and the problem is once you come here you don't remember it's always like the first time you know and you don't all the lessons you learned in the past hundred thousand lifetimes lost you know even the lessons we learned last week sometimes are lost So it's never a good place to be, but it's the best place to be if you want to achieve nirvana. Because we have just enough suffering to keep us honest, and we have just enough happiness and joy to keep us from committing suicide most of the time. It's an it's an intricate balance, you know, of suffering and pleasure. And and so here we are. And we have teachings. We have teachings that were started long, long ago about how to live as a human being in a skillful way that reduces your suffering and the suffering of others. Then, you finally get there, right? Okay, this is the only religion I know of that says, in order to be a Buddhist, you have to give up being a Buddhist. In order to achieve nirvana, being a Buddhist prevents you from achieving nirvana because it's an identification that is not connected to any kind of ultimate reality. It's a relative construct. So you go to the other shore and you let all the Buddhist stuff go. The Buddhist stuff that we've learned and cultivated and practiced for 10, 20, 30 years was simply the raft that took us across. And now we got to the other shore. So now we're not even us anymore. Ramdas, in one of his sayings, said, you know, the game is not to be somebody. The game is to be nobody. And so we're practicing to be nobody in the best sense of the word. That we are practicing to be connected to all things all the time without having to pull back and be a self again. We can continue to be a non-self every day in every way. 
Now, as I'm thinking to myself, as I'm going to go doing all these interviews at UCLA, the question might arise, are you enlightened? What am I going to say? Well, 1981, April, 7 o'clock in the morning. Yes, that was the time. (laughs) But maybe I don't need to say anything. Maybe I just should say no. Because do we ever know if we're enlightened? How do we know? It's a radical transformation from the inside out. And in this idea of self-reflection, will we see the characteristics You know, I find as I get older, I see less and less of who I am and more and more of what I used to be, that the past takes on a certain life of its own. And the future is dwindling. It's becoming less and less all the time. There was an interview done a while back, and they asked this man, he was 90 years old, what's the hardest part about being 90? He said, there is no future. Wow, I'm thinking to myself, in a way, that's what every Buddhist is striving for, to live in the present moment, to not have a future and not have a past. But are we prepared to not have a future and not have a past, and to be stuck as a prisoner in the present moment for the rest of whatever the present moment is? No beginning, no end. I don't know. So, I'm going to leave you with five things. I often recommend people start their day with loving-kindness meditation. And I think that's really important. It's a, it's a great way to upload useful intentions to carry you through the day and reduce suffering in your life and the lives of others. But this is the other side of this loving-kindness meditation. So, loving-kindness meditation and the five reflections. Number one, mind and body are of the nature to decay. I have not gone beyond decay. Mind and body are of the nature to be diseased. I have not gone beyond disease. Mind and body are of the nature to die. I have not gone beyond death. I am the owner of my karma. I was born of my karma. I am dependent on my karma. I will die because of my karma. Whatever intention I have, speech or action I shall do, whether skillful or unskillful, the results will be mine. This is like the anchor in relative reality, that we're only here for a short amount of time, that we're lucky enough to have found the Dharma, okay? And our refuge is nirvana. And the way to nirvana is our practice. So we have a lot of stuff going for us. But we're going to get old, we're going to get sick, and we're going to die. And we can't blame anything or anyone because that's the nature of life on earth. It is not the nature of life in nirvana. And our karma is our best friend. Our karma will allow us to change the course of our life. We do not have fatalism in Buddhism. We are able to change the course of our life when we make a conscious choice in the present moment. Deciding yay or nay, yes or no, left or right. Or as Yogi Berra would have said, when you come to the fork in the road, take it. (laughs) So we are one of the contributing factors to our life. We have a say in everything we do and say and think. 
We, we are part of it. We don't have to have faith. We don't have to believe it's going to get better. We simply need to make a choice now based on love, generosity, and wisdom. And it will unfold in a skillful way that reduces our suffering and the suffering of others. So that's what I've learned so far in my practice of Buddhism. And i got a couple good years left, so I'm sure I'll learn something else tomorrow. And that's the great joy of being alive, that you can always learn something else tomorrow. Does anybody have any questions or comments on what I've said today? Yes, sir, in the back. Yes. Yes, let me get a definition of karma. Simple one. A definition of karma. Karma is everything we think, say, and do. That is our karma. We have thinking karma, we have speaking karma, we have acting karma. The consequence, the results of that karma in early Buddhism is called vipaka. V-I-P-A-K-A. So we have karma and we have consequence. Consequence is not karma. We want to influence the consequence by having skillful karma. Good karma is, can be problematic because good is relative. But skillful means that if we're skillful in what we think, say, and do, we can actually reduce suffering in the world. And our suffering is included in that. So it can be our best friend. The thing I like most about karma is it doesn't have an intention of its own. The thing I liked least about the God of the Old Testament is he seemed to have an intention. He seemed to want things to go in a certain way, and if you didn't satisfy him in that, uh, your suffering increased dramatically. Karma could care less whether you're good or bad, skillful or unskillful. It is like gravity, and gravity could care less if you fall or stand. So that's what I like about karma. Thanks for the question. You can't hear you. Yes. Okay. Would you like to hear a little bit about Vajrayana? I'm on, I, I don't know much about it. It never, it never caught my fancy. It's a, a, it's a form of Buddhism that made it into Tibet around the 6th century. It has... Uh, both aspects of Theravada and Mahayana and aspects of the indigenous Bon religion, which was shamanistic and magical. It has a whole lot of bells and whistles and rites and rituals that never really spoke to me. I much preferred thinking of the Buddha sitting under a tree working on himself. That spoke to me as I sat in my room working on myself. And, but there are plenty of people who will speak about it and, and give wonderful explanations. I'm just not one of them. Thanks, Siddha. Yeah. yeah. Um, I've got, my experience through these uh, talks is that I get a lot out of the, what you talked about, the therapeutic part of it, the meditation and the precepts. That's enough for me. I don't, well, that's been my experience. But I sometimes feel that because that's been so life-changing for me, I might have an obligation to examine that stuff you talk about, about the 
past lives and the nirvana and all that, but I'd just be interested in what, if you've got any thoughts or guidance on that. Staying just in the therapeutic part, or because I've got so much out of that, is there some, is there some need to go further? I, I don't think so. If, if you're not going to talk to a lot of people about theology, there's probably not much need at all. In my line of work, uh, there was a need to try to understand where it came from and what it was. Uh, but again, uh, understanding that there's heavens and hells may in fact ultimately reduce your suffering, but no guarantee. It could also increase your suffering as well. And it's simply a menu. It's simply a map. It's never the terrain. It's never the meal. So it's just an intellectual exercise, you know. And by the time you're 90, you'll probably forget everything anyway. So all that time spent learning it and memorizing it will be gone. There's no risk or danger in just taking the bits that are helpful and not looking at the rest? No, I think, I think the Dalai Lama really said it best. He said, this is a religion of kindness. Just be kind. If, if you can be kind in everything you think, say, and do, you'll do as much as you need to. You know, and you'll benefit others as well. So you don't need to have all the other stuff. It becomes baggage after a while. And it also uh, prevents you from seeing new ways of looking at it because you're caught in your way of looking at it. So it's nice to stay flexible. And if you don't have a way of looking at it, then everything's a possibility. Yeah, good. Thanks. Thanks for the question. Yeah. Yes. So I'm having a problem lately being skillful and still telling the truth. Yeah. And sorting things out in relationships with people. Yeah. Where I, I want to say something, I feel like, you know, people have crossed the line with me. Yeah. And maybe taken advantage because I'm trying to be so nice. Yeah. And kind. Uh-huh. And so I'm having a problem, you know, saying kind of talk to you nicely. Or, <laughs> <laughs> Stepped on me when you did this. Yeah. And so I'm finding myself lying about it, trying to be skillful. Well, I think it's okay to have boundaries, and I and I think we need to define and defend our boundaries, but we can do it in a kind way too. We don't need to be abrasive, you know. Uh, we can we can we can stay with our truth and let other people have their truth as well. You know, not everybody's going to think the same way. You know, a lot of laws are passed to get everybody on the same page, but it doesn't work. You know, a lot of books are written so we all understand the universe in the same way, and it doesn't work. We all have our own unique way of looking at everything. And so sometimes it's hard to be really nice and let people step all over you. I find the older that I get and the nicer I get, they just think I'm senile. <laughs> so it works fine. <laughs> you know? I'm sorry? Are you getting kinder? I'm getting crankier as I get older. Well, you know, I, I, I'm seeing things that, uh, that weren't in my world before. That I, at a certain age, have decided I'm not of this world anymore. That the world I came from was much different. And the world I'm going to will be much different too. And it's difficult to let go of the old and embrace the new and, and feel that it's going to be okay. Because change can lead one to think it might be worse rather than better. And so to have the courage to let it just happen and then observe and not have too many opinions or comments about it, you know, it it can be challenging. 
And, and being skillful requires us to have a, a lot of things in place. And sometimes we just don't have all the things necessary to be skillful and kind and generous and wise. You know, but we do the best we can. And then there's always tomorrow, which is today. And, you know, then we try it again. Good luck. It's a good practice. So we've come to the end of our time together. Thank you all for coming in here and allowing us to turn off the air so you can hear me speak. That's got to be the worst part when it's 90 degrees. Crucialist speaking or staying cool, which has more value, you know. So let me do a, a quick loving-kindness meditation, and, and then we'll call it a day. May those of us who have come together today in mind and heart be happy, peaceful, and free from suffering. May no harm come to us. May no difficulties come to us. May no problems come to us. May we always find fulfillment. May we also have patience, courage, understanding, and determination to meet and overcome the inevitable difficulties, problems, and failures in life. May the suffering ones be suffering free, the fear-struck, fearless be. May the grieving shed all grief. May the sick find health relief.